Please do join me now in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 60. As we turn to God's Word, let's once again go to Him and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed do need Your help to understand Your Word, to Put your word into practice in our lives. Father, may the word that's before us help us grow in our understanding of who you are and what you have done for your people. Father, may your word and spirit now have their way with your gathered people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin by talking about confidence in the Christian life in general confidence in prayer in particular. First, I've got a question for all of us. Um, is confidence important in the Christian life? Yes or no? Is confidence important in the Christian life? Yes or no? I, I, I find it interesting to see um, when somebody's testifying before a, in a court of law or before a committee and they're being grilled, you know, the the questioner is like, yes or no, yes or no. Um, sometimes it's hard to answer a question, yes or no, because here's this next question. Is it good to have confidence as a Christian? Is it good? We said it's important. Is it good to have confidence, uh, yes or no? Well, it depends. It depends on what? It depends on the object of our confidence. It depends on the reason for our confidence. Put simply, the confidence can be in one or two places, in ourselves or in, in God. Now here's not a question, but a statement. It is important to have confidence when it comes to prayer. It is good to have confidence when it comes to prayer. And because it's prayer, it's going to be confidence in God, not ourselves. With Psalm 60, the psalmist, and indeed the nation, if you, if you read it already, you'll notice a lot of First-person plural pronouns. We, 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 us, 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 plural. In, in verse 9, uh, there's a, a first-person uh, me. But overall, the psalmist representing all of God's people, they're in desperate times. They are in dire straits. Dire straits. Now, what does it mean to be in dire straits. Well, to be in a position of extreme difficulty, to be in extreme distress or in a very bad situation, to be in desperate trouble or to be in impending danger. In dire straits. Now, that's not unusual. Not unusual. We see it throughout the Psalms and often we see God's people in dire straits through no fault of their own, uh, 
Think back with me to two weeks ago in Psalm 59. Remember in verse 4, David says, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. The end of verse 3, the beginning of verse 4. He says, I'm in dire straits, but there's no transgression of mine. It's no fault of mine. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we said David was not claiming sinless perfection, but he was claiming innocence as being charged by his opponents. However, in Psalm 60, just one psalm later, as one commentator rightly says, David was in trouble of his own making. You see, if we take a look at the historical situation a little bit, you'll see that ambition, that territorial expansion led David to attack, interestingly, the Syrians to the north, which opened up the south to an attack by the Edomites. So while David was going north to just expand the territory, to do a little land grab, it opened the back door, the door in the south, for God's people to find themselves waging war against the Edomites. Here in Psalm 60, David describes the devastation. He recalls the promises of God and he pleads for help. Now, should David be as confident going to God and getting help from God in Psalm 60 as he was in Psalm 59? In other words, should David be more or less confident depending on who's at fault? How about you? How about you? When you are besieged by troubles and difficulty and you go to God in prayer for relief and you know that as far as you can tell, you're not the cause. It's no fault of your own. I think most of us would be confident that God would answer and protect and rescue. But what about if we know that the fault is ours, that the trouble we've brought on ourselves, would we have the same confidence going to God? Well, I've got some good news for all of us. Psalm 60 is going to help us when it comes to confidence in the Christian life in general and prayer in particular, even in those times when what we're facing is to some degree, to some measure, brought on by ourselves. This psalm will teach the people of God how to pray and then how to act in desperate times, in dire straits, not only when they're innocent, so to speak, but when they're guilty. Now, I'm going to read the title, read the inscription now, and it's the longest title, the longest inscription of all the psalms. Um, listen. To the choir master, according to Sushan Edith, a miktam of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharam and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. That's a mouthful. That, is, that sounds like one of those Puritan sermon titles. Hugely long. 
It's a corporate lament for, lack of a better word, a military defeat. Um, Psalm 60 is a lament for the whole community in a time when Israel's continued life in the land. Remember, the land of promise, the promised land is, is under threat from Gentile neighbors all around them. And in the title, notice, for instruction. For instruction. Then, as it's being composed, probably to instruct the nation how to pray for the troops when they're in battle. But now, now as Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Written for our instruction. So let's keep that in mind, that what is before us is written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, he goes on, we might have hope. Now this title seems to link events to 2 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Chronicles chapter 18. There, in the historical summary, you see that this, this campaign ends in victory, but the psalm here as a lament could represent the prayers of the people in the midst of the battle. You see, historical books often summarize, and you see in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, that it's the conclusion of victory. It doesn't include the setbacks, the struggles, the defeats along the way. Indeed, it was written after the victory over Edom, but it recalls the struggles leading up to that victory. Because we all know when you hear victory, it's often a hard-won victory. So let me read now the 12 verses of Psalm chapter 60. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness with exultation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkah. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I will cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So let's unpack and explore this psalm by looking at its three movements. First, looking around at the current crisis, looking back to a past promise, and looking up through a present prayer. First, a current crisis looking around at a current crisis. We see that in the first five verses. Notice how the psalm starts off with 
in the first verse, a declaration and a request. The psalmist declares that God has rejected his people. That God has tre- is treating his people now if they were not his own. Now, if you know anything about the flow of biblical history, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Promises made, promises kept. At the end, we see in Revelation, my people are with me. I will be their God, they will be my people. And yet the psalmist says, God has rejected his people. I don't think any of us can, can hear in that language what, how hard it would be to write those words. What, what you would have had to observed and seen to come to that conclusion. So not only does he make a declaration, but he makes a demand. Well, he makes a request. He requests that God would restore his people. God, you've rejected us. Restore us. In other words, no longer reject us. But he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to provide two vivid and powerful images. Images having to do with land and people. Think about the theme in the Old Testament of the land, the promised land. Think about the people, God's people. Really, the people and a place, as somebody describes, kind of um, a way to look at the whole Old Testament history. A people for a place, and yet the earth shakes, the earth quakes, there's an earthquake. The psalmist is saying, God shakes things up. What looked stable it is no longer stable. Now, a moment ago, we talked about winds in western Kentucky and water in eastern Kentucky. And, you know, you, you find shelter from the wind, right? A strong structure. And, and, and water rises. What do you do? You find higher ground, right? But what do you do when the earth quakes? What, where do you go? When the earth beneath your feet is shaking. You see this powerful image? But not only is the earth quaking, David is saying God's people are wandering around like they're drunk. They're in a stupor. Why? Because they've had to drink wine. The, the, this frequent image employed by the prophets, the cup of wine, the cup is the cup of God's judgment. We see it over and over again in the prophets, drinking the cup of God's wrath, staggering because of it. These two images, the, the earth quaking and, and God's people staggering, stumbling around, it, it helps us feel the desperate wickedness, excuse me, the debt, well, that's true, the desperate weakness of the people of God and the weakness of the church. Notice in this rush of words, these rash words of of just expressing what he's seen, it it demonstrates that a believer doesn't have to, to have his thoughts straight, her thoughts straight and ordered before you pray. Come to God and express yourself. We're coming, right, as we said, to a father who is ready, willing, and able to help us as we pray. What kind of father would would say to a young child, a weak child, a fearful child, 
hey, get your words in order. Use better words. What a good example of just coming to the Lord in prayer. Well, why? Why does the psalmist believe that God has rejected his people? He's looking around, right? It's evidence of a military defeat. Why do we sometimes believe what we know really is not true about God? Because we look around and we see. We see stuff that doesn't make sense, but he sees military defeat. He sees the earth quaking, the people walking around in a stupor. And yet through this, David discerns that the real threat to God's people is not military. But the real threat, as he's describing it, is the judgment of God. Now why? Why does the psalmist believe that God, if God is rejected his people, why does he also believe that he can restore his people? At the end of verse 1, again, oh, restore us. How can he believe that as well? Well, because he knows that God has provided a banner a banner for those who fear him, a banner for his beloved ones. Now, commentators and scholars have been wrestling with what is this banner? You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, as we read in verse 4. What's the banner? Well, before we answer that question, notice they are rejected but beloved. He feels that God's people are rejected, but he knows that they are beloved. So this rejection in the big scheme of things is going to be temporary. It's not, it's not final. Think about the language that some of the prophets use to describe God with tender affection, with mercy, with great kindness. This rejection, David is going to realize, is temporary. It's not final. It's not permanent. So back to this banner. Well, I'm landing on the banner being prayer. Because here in this day, the banner was used as a rallying point for troops in preparation for battle and for leading them into action. I think you've seen that before in any good war movie, especially an old one, right? Somebody's got, you're rallying around the flag. When, when, if you see the flag still standing, that means there's still hope in the midst of the Bible, and, or in the battle. And what a good metaphor, a good image for prayer as a banner, a, rally, a rallying point in preparation for the battle, a rallying point for leading into battle and through battle. Notice how this first movement, verses one through five, ends. Answer us. Answer us. Salvation is being prayed for, and it's specifically success in military efforts with a view of carrying out Israel's calling in the world to, to be blessed, to be a blessing, to be a light to the nations. 
to provide hope and knowledge of the true and living God. Well, as the psalmist looks around at the current crisis, he also looks back to a past promise. And we see that in verses 6 through 8, a past promise. God has spoken in his holiness, a divine oracle probably spoken through a prophet associated with the temple. Notice God speaks truth. God speaks, he cannot but speak truth. And God, when he speaks, often makes promises. Promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob having to do with land, remember? First to Abraham, then renewed through Isaac and Jacob. Promises made, promises kept. Promises having to do with his plan for Israel's place in the world. Remember the promise to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to the nations. You see the the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky? Those are going to be your descendants, not able to be counted. So God has spoken. He speaks truth. He makes promises. And then it's a geography lesson. Um, most of you all have Bibles that have maps, right? Maps in the Bible. Why? Well, we, this is a historical faith, but it's also a, a, a faith that came about in space and in time. I think we often think about time, redemptive history unfolding, but there's also space. Things happened in locations. And these places in verses 6 and 7 that are mentioned are all parts of the land that God promised to Israel. In fact, Shechem and Sukkoth are the two places on each either side of the Jordan River where Jacob, the man Israel, came to and camped at as he came into the promised land. And then in verse 8, you see neighboring lands which also belong to to the Lord. And again, earlier we said what David has done in this is he's gone after territorial expansion just to grab land. Israel needed to be reminded that it wasn't just becoming bigger. No, it was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. Verses 6 and 7 proclaim the inheritance of Israel. And verse 8 puts the neighbors in their place. Notice in this geography lesson that God dominates the scene. There's a lot of place names, but it's mine, 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 says the Lord. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's a good reminder that God is sovereign. And here, For God's people, it's a reminder of the promises made and the promises being kept. Indeed, it's an awareness and acknowledgement of these promises made and promises kept that, that confidence is built. We're invited to hear the promise of God. And this would have meant way more to them than I think it can mean to us. But step back with me for a minute. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it not in some way, shape, or form a promise of God? What enables you to be honest in your dealings with other people? Is it not in one way, shape, or form 
a promise of God? What enables you to go to sleep at night with, with your to-do list not complete? With some relationships on the rocks, is it not still related to a promise of God? So the psalmist has looked around at this current crisis and he's looked back to a past promise and now he'll look ahead through a present prayer, a prayer that's anchored and powered by this past promise. So let's look now at verses 9 through 12, a present prayer, a look up. As I mentioned earlier, verse 9, you'll see a brief change in pronouns. David is representing God's people, but he also knows that he's being called to lead now in this battle. And Edom would represent the culmination of the military campaign. It was going to be the most heavily defended Location that was going to need the most help to succeed. Indeed, David is employing a rhetorical question following this promise and leading to that confidence that he'll express in particular at the end. Look at verse 10. He can't get away from the current crisis. He revisits it. Once again, is rejection final? Is it, is it complete? I mean, he's looking around. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our enemies. Sounds like Israel's getting beat up at the moment. They're losing. There's a sense that God is not with them or for them. And yet, there's an awareness beginning in verse 11. An awareness of the source of restoration, the source of salvation, the source of rescue. Where is it going to be found? Is it going to be in the strength of the army? Is it going to be in the number of the army? What's, what's going to save? He's asking God, oh, grant us help against the foe. You remember a few weeks ago, what's the, what's the quickest, simplest prayer to offer to God? Thanks. Maybe, but how about help? Help. David is asking for help. And though troubles assail us, we, we sing hymn number 95, no strength of our own or goodness we claim. That's what David is saying. For vain is the salvation of men, of man. No strength of our own or goodness we claim. If we were to sing, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, we would say, sing, I am weak, but thou art mighty. You see, David is simultaneously acknowledging that God can save and man cannot save. And it's not only man as seen through a window. In other words, other people. But it's an acknowledgement of man looking in a mirror. Yourself, You see that verse again? For vain is the salvation of man. Can other people help us? Yes. Should we help other people? Yes. Can we in complete, in doing the one another's that we're called to do, be a great aid and comfort and assistance and encouragement to one another? Absolutely. But are any of us ultimately capable of providing what anybody actually needs down deep? 
No. And can any of us provide for ourselves what we need down deep? No. David is a talented, skilled warrior by this point. He knows he can't do it. Salvation, help, rescue, restoration has got to come from someone else, from somewhere else. Before we go on, just ask yourself sometime, where's my confidence? Where do I look for help? Do I look through a window? Do I look into a mirror? Or do I go down on my knees and look up to heaven? Notice as he ends up, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Notice that the confidence comes not after the crisis, but in the crisis. I still am confused. I want the crisis to be over and then I'll be confident because it's over. And this psalm is helping us say, no, the confidence comes in the crisis. Now, Psalm 60, like many psalms, moves from lament, you see that in particular in the first three verses, to confidence. And we just saw that in verses 10 through 12. Now, as we move toward a conclusion, I want us to see that there is both danger and safety in Psalm 60. Now, what do I mean? What is the danger of Psalm 60? Well, just as Table Talk next month is going to talk about misunderstood biblical words and phrases, I think we can misunderstand Psalm 60. In particular, we can misunderstand who the enemy is, who the foe is. We can misapply, therefore, God's promise. See, our enemy is not flesh and blood. We know that, of course, from a number of places, Ephesians 6. But Paul rightly drives down and says our enemy is, is spiritual. And, and what, are, what are the two big enemies that every human, every Christian faces? Sin and death. Now here in Psalm 60, we, we see that it was written after God came alongside and Israel overcame her enemies. But here, now, if our enemies are, are, are sin and death, not some physical enemy of Israel, if that's our enemy, how do we overcome and how do we defeat these two enemies? Well, the answer leads us to the safety of Psalm 60. See, Psalm 60 is dangerous. You misinterpret it, you misapply it, and the next thing you know, we want to get into an us versus them. You know, we, we've got it together, they don't have it together, they're after us, we need to defend ourselves. No. What's the safety 
of Psalm 60. What makes the difference between danger and safety? How do we get there? What's the difference? Well, again, we should know by now. It's faith in Jesus, right? It's the completed canon. It's the arrival of the Messiah. Faith in Jesus to confront and deal with a present enemy, sin, and a future enemy, death. Jesus has defeated, of course, as the New Testament clearly shows us, has defeated both. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. With God, we shall do valiantly. God with us through faith in Jesus. You see, Psalm 60 calls us to run to Jesus. There is danger. There is safety. Psalm 60 calls us to run to Jesus for the first time or the umpteenth time. I was just reading the other day. Peter and Jesus, well, how many times shall I forgive him? Seven times? Seven times seven, right? Seventy, seven, a lot, all the time. Keep going. I've run to Jesus 12 times. Do I have to do it again? Yes, I've run to Jesus 27 times with the same problem. Should I? Can I? Yes, yes. It calls us to run to Jesus for the first time or for the umpteenth time. You see, we can run to God in prayer not only when we are being besieged by enemies through no fault of our own. The problem with sin and death is it's problems of our own making, right? Original sin, actual sin, inheritance, sin nature, acting out of that nature. It's our own problem. It's our own fault. And we are encouraged to nonetheless run to Jesus. How, how encouraging is that? Is that where your confidence is in? Confidence is, I haven't sinned, I'll run to Jesus. He'll hear me, he'll receive me. Or I have sinned. I am a mess. I am guilty. I don't know what to do. Run to Jesus. One commentator says this. The message here is wider than the occasion. In every crisis, even one of our own culpable making, the solution is to repeat the promises of God and to unfurl the banner of prayer. When we are unfaithful, he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Paul has to encourage Timothy, his spiritual son. When we are faithless, God remains faithful because he can't deny himself. In other words, we're going to blow it, right? Time and time again. But God is not going to blow it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from unrighteousness. He can't but be like that. And be God. That's great news for us. And so when we find ourselves in dire straits through no fault of our own or due to great fault of our own, run to Jesus because our confidence is not 
found in ourselves and who we are or what we do. Our confidence is found in him. You know, in just a moment, we're going to sing these words. And we remember the promise made to all who, call, who come in faith. Excuse me. And we remember the promise made that all who come to faith find forgiveness at the cross. To all those who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. For all those in dire straits. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people who remembers the promise? Who believes the promise? Who acts on the promise that all who call in faith Come in faith, find forgiveness at the cross for the first time or the umpteenth time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to grow in our understanding and awareness that we do not clean ourselves up to come to you. We come to you and you clean us up, slowly but surely. Father, help us when we find ourselves in extreme distress through no fault of our own or help us when we find ourselves in extreme distress through great fault of our own to take the same action, to run to Christ, to find forgiveness at the cross and to find renewed strength through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.